This is section 26 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, section 26, Territorial Enterprise, February 1866, part 1. Territorial Enterprise, February 4, 1866. Among the Spirits. There was an audience of about four hundred ladies and gentlemen present, and plenty of newspaper people, neuters. I saw a good-looking, earnest-faced, pale, red-haired, neatly-dressed young woman standing on a little stage behind a small-deal table with slender legs and no drawers. The table, understand me. I am writing in a hurry, but I do not desire to confound my description of the table with my description of the lady. The lady was Mrs. Foy. As I was coming up town with the examiner reporter in the early part of the evening, he said he had seen a gambler named Gus Graham shot down in a town in Illinois years ago by a mob, and as probably he was the only person in San Francisco who knew of the circumstance, he thought he would give the spirits Graham to chaw on a while. Note bene, this young creature is a Democrat, and speaks with the native strength and inelegance of his tribe. In the course of the show he wrote his old pal's name on a slip of paper, and folded it up tightly, and put it in a hat, which was passed around, and which already had about five hundred similar documents in it. The pile was dumped on the table, and the medium began to take them up, one by one, and lay them aside, asking, "'Is this spirit present? Or this? Or this?' About one in fifty would rap, and the person who sent up the name would rise in his place and question the defunct. At last a spirit seized the medium's hand, and wrote, "'Gus Graham,' backwards. Then the medium went skirmishing through the papers for the corresponding name, and that old sport knew his card by the back. When the medium came to it, after picking up fifty others, he rapped. A committee man unfolded the paper, and it was the right one. I sent for it and got it. It was all right. However, I suppose all them Democrats are on sociable terms with the devil. The young man got up and asked, "'Did you die in fifty-one?' Fifty-two, fifty-three, fifty-four, ghost, rap, rap, rap. Did you die of cholera, diarrhea, dysentery, dog-bite, smallpox, violent death, rap, rap, rap. Were you hanged, drowned, stabbed, shot, rap, rap, rap. Did you die in Mississippi, Kentucky, New York, Sandwich Islands, Texas, Illinois, rap, rap, rap. In Adams County, Madison, Randolph, rap, rap, rap. It was no use trying to catch the departed gambler. He knew his hand and played it like a major. I was surprised. I had a very dear friend who, I had heard, had gone to the spirit land or perdition or some of those places, and I desired to know something concerning him. There was something so awful, though, about talking with living, sinful lips to the ghostly dead, that I could hardly bring myself to rise and speak. But at last I got tremblingly up, and said with low and reverent voice, "'Is the spirit of John Smith present?' Whack, whack, whack! God bless me! 
I believe all the dead and damned John Smiths between hell and San Francisco tackled that poor little table at once. I was considerably set back. Stunned, I may say. The audience urged me to go on, however, and I said, "'What did you die of?' The Smiths answered to every disease and casualty that man can die of. "'Where did you die?' They answered yes to every locality I could name while my geography held out. "'Are you happy where you are?' There was a vigorous and unanimous no from the late Smiths. "'Is it warm there?' An educated Smith seized the medium's hand and wrote, "'It's no name for it.' "'Did you leave any Smiths in that place when you came away?' "'Dead loads of them.' I fancied I heard the shadowy Smiths chuckle at this feeble joke, the rare joke that there could be live loads of Smiths where all are dead. How many Smiths are present? Eighteen millions. The procession now reaches from here to the other side of China. Then there are many Smiths in the kingdom of the lost? The Prince Apollyon calls all newcomers Smiths on general principle and continues to do so until he is corrected, if he chances to be mistaken. What do lost spirits call their dread abode? They call it the Smithsonian Institute. I got hold of the right Smith at last, the particular Smith I was after, my dear, lost, lamented friend, and learned that he died a violent death. I feared as much. He said his wife talked him to death. Poor wretch! But, without any nonsense, Mrs. Foy's séance was a very astonishing affair to me, and a very entertaining one. The examiner man's old pard, the gambler, was too many for me. He answered every question exactly right, and his disembodied spirit, invisible to mortal eyes, must have been prowling around that hall last night. That is, unless this pretended spiritualism is only that other black art called clairvoyance, after all. And yet, the clairvoyant can only tell what is in your mind. But once or twice last night the spirits brought facts to the minds of their questioners, which the latter had forgotten before. Well, I cannot make anything out of it. I asked the examiner man what he thought of it, and he said, in the democratic dialect, Well, I don't know. I don't know. But it's damned funny. He did not mean that it was laughable. He only meant that it was perplexing. But such is the language of democracy. Territorial Enterprise, February 1866. More outcroppings. Ward, the shirt-man, has issued a pamphlet of poems, burlesques of some of the poems in Outcroppings, and purporting to be a second edition of that work, I suppose, as it bears the same title. It is simply an advertising affair, of course. It was written by Trem. The burlesque of James Linnan's I Feel I'm Growing Old is the most outlandish combination of untraceable Scotch phraseology I ever saw. I think it is a pretty good take-off on the fashion some folks have of humbugging Americans with poetry that defies criticism, because its extravagant Scotchiness defies comprehension. We have come to think in our day and generation that every piece of Scotch verse, which we cannot understand, is necessarily pure, sweet poetry, and that all prose, which is spelled atrociously, is necessarily humorous and intensely funny. Perhaps you can dig some meaning out of, I feel I'm growing mirk. 
by Jean Lining. I feel I'm growing murk, good wife, I feel I'm growing murk, unsicker girns the graith and doop, and I the stooned is burk. I've fashed myself wi crishy racks, o'er joke and hallen braw, and now I'll stolens pit my duds and garsark white as snaw. I feel I'm growing murk, good wife, I feel I'm growing murk. And why and why the jiglet jinks tis weeped wid my dirk? My clays are murk wi howdy wangs, but still my heart is fair. Though scornered yowicks lope and blink, I'm nay so pure in gear. I feel I'm growing murk, good wife, I feel I'm growing murk. The howdy bicker skeeps my een, na mair the coof I'll shirk. I'll get a ward's neat-fitting shirt, they'll glint with pawky een. There's sack score ward's shirt sold, good wife, since I called in yestereen. Territorial Enterprise, February 6th and 7th, 1866. Portion of San Francisco Letter, written February 3rd, 1866. Take the stand, Fitz Smythe. Fitz Smythe, amigo of the Gold Hill News, is the champion of the police, and is always in a sweat because I find fault with them. Now, I don't find fault with them often, and when I do, I sometimes do it honestly. Even Fitz Smythe will not have cheek to say he expresses his honest opinions when he invariably and eternally slobbers them over with his slimy praise, and can never find them otherwise than pure and sinless in every case. No man is always blameless. Fitz Smythe ought to recollect that, and bestow his praise with more judgment. Fitz knows he would abuse them like pirates if they were all to die suddenly. I know it, because he always abuses dead people. He was a firm, unswerving friend of poor Barney Olwell, until the man was hanged and buried, and then look what hard names he called him in the last news. Fitz can ruin the reputation of any man with a paragraph or two of his praise. I don't say it in a spirit of anger, but I am telling it for a plain truth. I have only stirred the police up and irritated them a little with my cheerful abuse, but Fitz Smythe has utterly ruined their character with his disastrous praise. I don't ask any man to take my evidence alone in this matter. I refer doubters to the police themselves. But for Fitz Smythe's kindly meant but calamitous compliments, the police of San Francisco would stand as high to-day as any similar body of men in the world. But you know yourself that you soon cease to attach weight to the compliments of a man whose mouth is an eternally flowing fountain of flattery. Fitz Smythe praises all alike, makes no distinction. There's that man Ansbro. I don't know him, never saw him that I know of. But I know, and so does Fitz Smythe, that he does twice as much work as any other detective on the force. But does Fitz Smythe praise him any more than he praises those pets who never do anything at all? Not he. He makes no discrimination. And Chapel? <laughs> but why argue the case? When those officers do anything, Fitz impartially rings in all the balance of the force to share the credit, sometimes. Fitz, you won't do. I have told you so fifty times, and I tell you again that you won't do. I can warm you up with ten sentences, and make you dance like a hen on a hot griddle any time, Fitz Smythe, 
I know your weak spot. I can touch you on the raw whenever I please, because you lose your temper and write the most spiteful, undignified things. You see, you will always be a little awkward with a pen, Fitz, because your head isn't sound, isn't well balanced. You have good points, you know, but they are kept down and crowded out by bad ones. You don't know that when a man is in a controversy, he is at a great disadvantage when he loses his temper. It leaves him too open to ridicule, you know. And you can't stand ridicule, Fitz. It cuts you to the quick. It just makes you howl. I know that as well as you do, Fitz, and I am saying these things for your own good. You are young, and you are apt to let the fire of youth drive you into exceedingly unhappy performances. I do not mean that you are so young in years, you know, but young in experience of the world. You ought to be modest. The same wisdom which was so potent in Illinois and the wilds of Texas does not overpower the people of a great city like it used to there, you know. Ah, no. They read you attentively, because you write with a certain attractiveness, Fitz Smythe, but they say, Oh, this prairie wisdom is too wide, too flat, and this swamp wisdom's too deep altogether, and they don't attach any weight to your praise of the police. They say, Oh, this fellow don't know, he ain't used to police. They don't have em in the wilds of Texas, where this ranger come from. But you are certainly the most interesting subject to write about, Fitzy. I never get hold of you, but I want to stay with you and hang on to you just as if you were a jug. I didn't intend to write two lines this time, Fitz. I only wanted to get you, as excuser and explainer-in-chief to the police, to go on the witness-stand and inform me when it is possible for a man to lug a prisoner about a mile through the thickest settled portion of this city, clear to the station-house, and never come across a policeman. Read this communication from the morning call, Fitz, and it is a true version, and then go on and explain it, Fitz. Try it, you long-legged rip. Where are the police? Editor's Morning Call on Thursday night a terrible onslaught was made on the house of a peaceable citizen on Larkin Street by a band of soldiers. The man, awakened by this attempt to enter his dwelling, called on his neighbors for help. One came to his aid. The soldiers threatened to fire on the families. But, after a severe fight and long chase, the citizen and his neighbor captured two of the rascals near the Spring Valley schoolhouse. They have been held over to appear before the county court. The citizen, with his prisoner, came from the Presidio Road, along Larkin, down Union, along Stockton, down Broadway, to Kearney Street, before he met an officer. The neighbor, with his prisoner, came from the same place, down Union, to Powell, along that street to Washington, and down to the lower side of the plaza, before he met an officer. This was between three and four a.m. What I wish to know is, where were the police? And cannot we, in the remote parts, be protected by at least one officer? More cemeterial ghastliness. I spoke the other day of some singular proceedings of a firm of undertakers here, and now I come to converse about one or two more of the undertaker tribe. I begin to think this sort of people have no bowels, as the ancients would say, no heart, as we would express it. They appear to think only of business, business first, last and all the time. 
they trade in the woes of men as coolly as other people trade in candles and mackerel their hearts are ironclad and they seem to have no sympathies in common with their fellow-men a prominent firm of undertakers here own largely in lone mountain cemetery and also in the toll-road leading to it now if you or i owned that toll-road we would be satisfied with the revenue from a long funeral procession and would throw in the corpse we would let him pass free of toll we would wink placidly at the gatekeeper and say never mind this gentleman in the hearse this fellow's a deadhead but the firm i am speaking of never do that if a corpse starts to paradise or perdition by their road he has got to pay his toll or else switch off and take some other route and it is rare to see the pride this firm takes in the popularity and respectability of their cemetery and the interest and even enthusiasm which they display in their business a friend of mine was out at lone mountain the other day and was moving sadly among the tombs thinking of departed comrades and recalling the once pleasant faces now so cold and the once familiar voices now so still and the once busy hands now idly crossed beneath the turf when he came upon mr smith of the firm ah good morning says smith come out to see us at last have you glad you have let me show you round let me show you round pretty fine ain't it everything in apple pie order eh everybody says so everybody says mighty few graveyards go ahead of this we are endorsed by the best people in san francisco we get em sir we get the pick and choice of the departed come let me show you here's major general jones distinguished man he was very distinguished man heisted him up on that mound there where he's prominent and here's mcspadden rich oh my and we've got brigadier general jollopson here there he is over there keep him trimmed up and spruce as a fresh plant all the time and we've got swinley and stiggers the bankers and johnson and swipe the railroad men and more admirals and them kind of people slathers of them and bless you we've got as much as a whole block planted in nothing but hundred thousand dollar fellows and here Mr. Smith's face lighted up suddenly with a blaze of enthusiasm, and he rubbed his hands together and ducked his head to get a better view through the shrubbery of the distant toll-road, and then exclaimed, "'Ah! Is it another? Yes, I believe it is. Yes, it is. Third arrival to-day. Long procession. George, this is gay. Well, so long, Thompson. I must go and cash this party.' And the happy undertaker skipped lightly away, to offer the dismal hospitalities of his establishment to the unconscious visitor in the hearse. Territorial Enterprise, February 8th through 10th, 1866. Portion of San Francisco Letter, written on February 6th, 1866. Remarkable Dream I dreamed last night that I was sitting in my room smoking my pipe and looking into the dying embers on the hearth, conjuring up old faces in their changing shapes, and listening to old voices in the moaning winds outside, when there was a knock at the door, and a man entered, bowed, walked deliberately forward, and sat down opposite me. He was dressed in a queer old garb of I don't know how many centuries ago. He said, with a perceptible show of vanity, "'My name's Ananius. Uh, may have heard of me, perhaps?' I said reflectively, "'No, no, I think not, Mr. Anan—' "'Never heard of me?' Bismillah! Ochoni! 
Gwail, but you couldn't have read the scriptures. I rose to my feet in great surprise. Ah, is it possible? I remember now. I remember your history. Yes, 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 I remember you made a little statement that wouldn't wash, so to speak, and they took your life for it. They, they bounced a thunderbolt on your head, or something of that sort, didn't they? Yes, but drop these matters and let's to business. The thief sympathizes with the thief, the murderer with the murderer, the vagabond with the vagabond. I, too, feel for my kind. I want to do something for this Fitz Smythe. Give me your hand. This sentiment does you honor, sir, it does you honor. And this solicitude of the Prince of Liars for the humble disciple Fitz Smythe is well merited. It is indeed. For although, sire, his efforts may not be brilliant, they make up for that defect in bulk and quantity. Such steady persistence as his, such unwearying devotion to his art, are deserving of the highest encomium. You know the man, I see that, and he is worthy of your admiration. As you say, his lies are not brilliant, but they never slack up. They are always on time. Some of them are awkward, very stupid and awkward, but that is to be expected, of course, where a man is at it so constantly and exhaustively as Fitz Smythe, or as we call him in hell, Brother Smythe. We all take the altar. But they are strong. They are awkward and stupid, but they are powerful, free from truth. You take his mildest lie. Take those he tells about Mark Twain, for instance, who is the only newspaper man I have ever come across who wouldn't lie and couldn't lie, shame to him. Take those lies. Take even the very mildest of them. And don't you know they'd let a man out mighty quick in my time? Why, there'd have been more thunder and lightning after him in two seconds. If Fitz Smythe had lived in my time and told that little lie he told about you last, uh, just that little one even, he'd have been knocked from Jericho to Jacksonville quick as winking. Lord bless you, but they were mighty particular in those days. Notice how they hazed me. So they did, sir, so they did. They snatched you very lively indeed, sir. But we'll come to business now. No man's productions are more admired in the regions of the damned than Fitz Smythe's. We have watched his career with pride and satisfaction and at a meeting held in perdition last night, a committee of the most distinguished liars the world has ever produced was appointed to visit the earth and confer upon our gifted disciples certain marks of distinction to which we consider him entitled. Orders of merit they are, honors which he has laboriously earned. We wish to confer these compliments upon him through you, his bosom friend. Now, therefore, I— Ananias, chief of liars by seniority, do hereby create our worthy disciple Armand Leonidas Fitz Smythe Amigo Stiggers, a knight of the Grand Order of the Liars of St. Ananias, and confer upon him the freedom of hell. And the symbol of this order being a horse, I do hereby present him this noble animal, which manifests its preference for falsehood over truth, by devouring daily newspapers in preference to any other food. I looked at the horse, as he stood there chewing up my last bulletin, and recognized him as the beast Fitz Smythe rides every day. 
Ananias now bade me good evening, and said his wife, another member of the committee, would now call upon me. The door opened, and the ancient Sapphira, who was stricken with death for telling a lie ages ago, stood before me. She said, "'I have heard my husband. He has spoken well. It is sufficient. I do thereby create Armand Leonidas Fitzsmythe Amigo Stiggers, a knight of the Order of the Liars of St. Sapphira, and clothe him with the regalia pertaining to the same, this pair of gray pantaloons, a sign and symbol of the matrimonial supremacy which I have enjoyed in my household from time immemorial. As she left the gray pantaloons and departed, saying the next member of the committee who would appear would be the most noble, the Baron de Munchausen, the door opened, and the world-famed liar entered. "'I come to do honor to my son, the inspired Armand Leonidas Fitzsmythe Amigo Stiggers. It ill beseemeth a father to boast at length of his own offspring. Wherefore I shall say no more in that respect, but proceed to create him a knight of the noble order of the liars of St. Munchausen, and invest him with the regalia pertaining to the same, this gray frock-coat, which hath been a symbol of depravity in all ages of the world. And the great baron shed a few tears of paternal pride, and murmured, "'Kiss him for his father!' and went away. As he disappeared, he remarked that the next and last member of the committee would now wait upon me in the person of Thomas Pepper. And in a moment the renowned Tom Pepper, who was such a preposterous liar that he couldn't get to heaven, and they wouldn't have him in hell, was present. He said, "'I have watched the great Armand Leonidas Fitzsmythe, amigo Stiggers, with extraordinary interest. So we all have, but how heedless we are! Those who were with you within this hour praised him without stint, and mentioned his excellencies. Yet not one of them has discovered his crowning grace, his highest gift. It is this. He always tells the truth with such windy, wordy, blundering awkwardness that nobody ever believes it, and so his truths usually pass for his most splendid falsehoods. I could not help acknowledging to myself that this was so. A man with such a talent as that is bound to achieve high distinction and do great service in our ranks, and for this talent of his more than for his wonderful abilities in distorting facts, I do hereby confer upon him the sublime order of the Knights of the Liars of St. Pepper, and present him with a symbol pertaining to the same, this grim, twisted, sharply projecting sunburned moustache, whose fashion and pattern are only permitted to be used by those noble knights whose nature it is to war against truth wherever they find it, and to go a long, long way out of their road to prospect for chances to lie. I am the only man the world ever produced who was so wonderful a romancer that he could neither get a show in heaven nor hell, and Fitzsmythe will be the second one. It will be jolly. It is lonesome now, but when Smythe comes, we two will loaf around on the outside of damnation and swap lies and be perfectly happy. Good day, old petrified facts. Good day. 
and Tom Pepper, the most splendid liar the world ever gave birth to, was gone. That was my dream, and don't you know that for as much as six hours afterwards I truly believed it was nothing but a dream. But just before three o'clock today I thought my hair would turn white with amazement when I saw Amigo Fitz Smith issue from that alley near the Alta office riding the very horse Ananias gave him, and that horse eating a file of the Gold Hill News, and wearing the same gray pantaloons Mrs. Sapphira Ananias gave him and the gray coat that Baron Munchausen gave him, and with his pensive nose overhanging those two skewers, that absurd sunburned mustache, I mean, which Tom Pepper gave him. So it was reality. It was no dream after all. This lets me out with Fitzsmythe, you know. I cannot associate with that kind of stock. I don't want the worst characters in hell to be running after me with friendly messages and little testimonials of admiration for Smythe and blowing about his talents and bragging on him, and belching their villainous fire and brimstone all through the atmosphere, and making my place smell worse than a menagerie. I have too much regard for my good name and my personal comfort, and so this lets me out with Fitz Smythe. Ministerial Change The Reverend Richard F. Putnam, late rector of the Episcopal Church at Grass Valley, has assumed the pastorate of the Church of the Advent in this city. Call. This gentleman, who was long connected with the editorial department of the Territorial Enterprise, and was latterly employed on the Sacramento Union, was one of the best men I ever knew. He was a man who could not whistle hard tunes, could not whistle easy ones, so as to make a person wish to keep it up long at a time. Some of the printers used to come to listen when he begun but the more cultured usually went out. But he could swear and make up telegraph news with any man. He was a man who could go down into a beer-cellar in the shank of the evening, and curse and swear, and play commercial seven-up with good average luck and without chicanery till dewy morn, and drink beer all the while, all the while. He was a man who was handy with his pen, and would write you a crusher on any subject under the sun, no matter whether he knew anything about it or not, and he would be growling at somebody or other all through, and if everybody went away and left him, he would sit there and curse and swear at his lamp till it burned blue, and he cursed that boy that cleaned that lamp till the constitution of the same was permanently impaired. He was a man who would wade through snow up to his neck to serve his friend, and would convey him home when drunk, and peel him and put him to bed if it was a mile and a half. He was a man who was neck and crop and neck and heels for his friends, and blood, hair, and the ground tore up to his enemies. Take him how you would, he was an ornament to his species. And there is no man that is more sorry than I am to see him forsake the pleasant fields he was wont to tread and confine himself to a limited beat on the gospel, to a beat in a town which is small and where he cannot have full swing according to his dimensions, if I may so speak in connection with matters pertaining to the scriptural line of business. P.S. But I find that this Putnam mentioned in the item above is not the Putnam I have been speaking of. I was talking of C.A.V. Putnam, and I perceive that the above person is Richard F. Well. I am glad, and it is all the better as it is. 
Territorial Enterprise, February 1866. Mark Twain, a committee man. I attended the seance last night. After the house was crowded with ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Foy stepped out upon the stage and said it was usual to elect a committee of two gentlemen to sit up there and see that everything was conducted with perfect honesty and fairness. She said she wished the audience to name gentlemen whose integrity, whose conscientiousness, in a word whose high moral character in every respect, was notorious in the community. The majority of the audience arose with one impulse and called my name. This handsome compliment was as grateful as it was graceful, and I felt the tears spring to my eyes. I trust I shall never do anything to forfeit the generous confidence San Francisco has thus shown in me. This touching compliment is none the less grateful to me when I reflect that it took me two days to get it up. I put up that hand myself. I got all my friends to promise to go there and vote for me to be on that committee, and having reported a good deal in legislatures, I knew how to do it right. I had a two-thirds vote secured. I wanted enough to elect me over the medium's veto, you know. I was elected, and I was glad of it. I thought I would feel a good deal better satisfied if I could have a chance to examine into this mystery myself, without being obliged to take somebody else's word for its fairness, and I did not go on that stand to find fault or make fun of the affair, a thing which would not speak well for my modesty when I reflect that so many men so much older and wiser than I am see nothing in spiritualism to scoff at, but firmly believe in it as a religion. Mr. Whiting was chosen as the other committee man, and we sat down at a little table on the stage with the medium, and proceeded to business. We wrote the names of various departed persons. Mr. W. wrote a good many, but I found that I did not know many dead people. However, I put in the names of two or three whom I had known well, and then filled out the list with names of citizens of San Francisco who had been distinguished in life, so that most persons in the audience could tell whether facts stated by such spirits concerning themselves were correct or not. I will remark here that not a solitary spirit summoned by me paid the least attention to the invitation. I never got a word out of any of them. One of Mr. Whiting's spirits came up and stated some things about itself which were correct. Then some five hundred closely folded slips of paper containing names were dumped in a pile on the table, and the lady began to lay them aside one by one. Finally a rap was heard. I took the folded paper. The spirit, so-called, seized the lady's hand and wrote J. M. Cook, backwards and upside down, on a sheet of paper. I opened the slip I held, and, as Captain Cuttle would say, J. M. Cook was the dientical name in it. A gentleman in the audience said he sent up the name. He asked a question or so, and then the spirit wrote, "'Would like to communicate with you alone.' The privacy of this ghost was respected, and he was permitted to go to thunder again unmolested. William Nelson reported himself from the other world, and in answer to questions asked by a former friend of his in the audience, said he was aged twenty-four when he died, died by violence, died in a battle, was a soldier, had fought both in the infantry and cavalry, fell at Chickamauga, had been a Catholic on earth, was not one now. Then, in answer to a pelting volley of questions, the shadowy warrior wrote, 
I don't want to answer any more about it. Exit Nelson. About this time it was suggested that a couple of Germans be added to the committee, and it was done. Mr. Wallenstein, an elderly man, came forward, and also Mr. Ollendorf, a spry young fellow, cocked and primed for a sensation. They wrote some names. Then young Ollendorf said something which sounded like, Ist ein Geisthirns, bursts of laughter from the audience, three raps, signifying that there was a Geisthirns. Wollen Sie schrien? More laughter. Three raps. Einzig stolen. Lin softer lichter. Herafter Frau Leiner back folderol. Oh, this is too rough, you know. I can't keep up the run of this sort of thing. Incredible as it may seem, the spirit cheerfully answered yes to that astonishing proposition. Young Ollendorf sprang to his feet in a state of consuming excitement. He exclaimed, Ladies and gentlemen! I write the name for a man what leafs. Spirit rapping tells me he ties in year eighteen hundred and twelve, but he use as live and healthy as the medium. Sit down, sir, Mr. O. But the spirit cheat. There is no such spirit. All this time applause and laughter by turns from the audience. Medium. Take your seat, sir, and I will explain this matter and she explained it. And in that explanation she let off a blast which was so terrific that I half expected to see young Ollendorf shoot up through the roof. She said he had come up there with a fraud and deceit and cheating in his heart, and a kindred spirit had come from the land of shadows to commune with him. She was terribly bitter. She said in substance, though not in words, that perdition was full of just such fellows as Ollendorf, and they were ready on the slightest pretext to rush in and assume anybody's name, and rap, and write, and lie and swindle, with a perfect looseness, whenever they could rope in a living affinity like poor Ollendorf, to communicate with. Great applause and laughter. Ollendorf stood his ground with good pluck, and was going to open his batteries again, when a storm of cries arose all over the house. "'Get down! Go on! Speak on! We'll hear you!' Climb down from that platform. Stay where you are. Vamos. Stick to your post. Say your say. The medium rose up and said if Ollendorf remained, she would not. She recognized no one's right to come there and insult her by practicing a deception upon her and attempting to bring ridicule upon so solemn a thing as her religious belief. The audience then became quiet, and the subjugated Ollendorf retired from the platform. The other German raised a spirit questioned it at some length in his own language, and said the answers were correct. The medium claims to be entirely unacquainted with the German language. A spirit seized the medium's hand and wrote G. L. Smith very distinctly. She hunted through the mass of papers, and finally the spirit rapped. She handed me the folded paper she had just picked up. It had T. J. Smith in it. You never can depend on these Smiths. You call for one, and the whole tribe will come clattering out of hell to answer you. Upon further inquiry it was discovered that both these Smiths were present. We chose T.J. A gentleman in the audience said that was his Smith, so he questioned him, and Smith said he died by violence. He had been a teacher, not a school-teacher, but, after some hesitation, a teacher of religion, and was a sort of a cross between a universalist and a Unitarian. 
has got straightened out and changed his opinion since he left here. Said he was perfectly happy. Mr. George Purnell, having been added to the committee, proceeded in connection with myself, Mrs. Foy, and a number of persons in the audience, to question this talkative and frolicsome old parson. Among spirits, I judge, he is the gayest of the gay. He said he had no tangible body. A bullet could pass through him and never make a hole. Rain could pass through him as though vapor, and not discommode him in the least. Wherefore, I suppose, he don't know enough to come in when it rains, or don't care enough. Says heaven and hell are simply mental conditions. Spirits in the former have happy and contented minds, and those in the latter are torn by remorse of conscience. Says as far as he is concerned, he is all right. He is happy. Would not say whether he was a very good or a very bad man on earth. The shrewd old waterproof nonentity. I asked the question so that I might average my own chances for his luck in the other world, but he saw my drift. Says he has an occupation there, puts in his time teaching and being taught. Says there are spheres, grades of perfection. He is making pretty good progress. Has been promoted a sphere or so since his matriculation. I said mentally, Go slow, old man, go slow. You have got all eternity before you. And he replied not. He don't know how many spheres there are, but I suppose there must be millions, because if a man goes galloping through them at the rate this old universalist is doing, he will get through an infinitude of them by the time he has been there as long as old Sesostris and those ancient mummies, and there is no estimating how high he will get in even the infancy of eternity. I am afraid the old man is scouring along rather too fast for the style of his surroundings and the length of time he has got on his hands. Says spirits cannot feel heat or cold, which militates somewhat against all my notions of orthodox damnation, fire and brimstone. Says spirits commune with each other by thought. They have no language. Says the distinctions of the sex are preserved there, and so forth and so on. The old parson wrote and talked for an hour, and showed by his quick, shrewd, intelligent replies that he had not been sitting up nights in the other world for nothing. He had been prying into everything worth knowing, and finding out everything he possibly could, as he said himself, when he did not understand a thing he hunted up a spirit who could explain it. Consequently, he is pretty thoroughly posted, and for his accommodating conduct and its uniform courtesy to me, I sincerely hope he will continue to progress at his present velocity until he lands on the very roof of the highest sphere of all, and thus achieves perfection. I have made a report of those proceedings which every person present will say is correct in every particular, but I do not know any more about the queer mystery than I did before. I could not even tell where the knocks were made, though they were not two feet from me. Sometimes they seemed to be on the corner of the table, sometimes under the center of it, and sometimes they seemed to proceed from the medium's knee-joints. I could not locate them at all, though. They only had a general seeming of being in any one spot. Sometimes they even seemed to be in the air, as to where that remarkable intelligence emanates from which directs those strangely accurate replies. That is beyond my reason. I cannot any more account for that than I could explain those wonderful miracles performed by Hindu jugglers. I cannot tell whether the power is supernatural in either case or not. 
and I never expect to know as long as I live. It is necessarily impossible to know, and it is mighty hard to fully believe what you don't know. But I am going to see it through now, if I do not go crazy, an eccentricity that seems singularly apt to follow the investigations of spiritualism. Territorial Enterprise, February 1866. THE FASHIONS I once made up my mind to keep the ladies of the state of Nevada posted upon the fashions, but I found it hard to do. The fashions got so shaky that it was hard to tell what was good orthodox fashion and what heretical and vulgar. This shakiness still obtains in everything pertaining to a lady's dress except her bonnet and her shoes. Some wear waterfalls, some wear nets, some wear cataracts of curls, and a few go bald among the old maids, so no man can swear to any particular fashion in the matter of hair. The same uncertainty seems to prevail regarding hoops. Little high-flyer schoolgirls of bad associations, and a good many women of full growth, wear no hoops at all. And we suspect these as quickly and as naturally as we suspect a woman who keeps a poodle. Some who I know to be ladies wear the ordinary moderate-sized hoops, and some who I also know to be ladies wear the new hoop of the spread-eagle pattern, and some wear the latter who are not elegant and virtuous ladies, but that is a thing that may be said of any fashion whatever, of course. The new hoops with a spreading base look only tolerably well. They are not bell-shaped. The spread is much more abrupt than that. It is tent-shaped. I do not mean an army tent, but a circus tent, which comes down steep and small half-way, and then shoots suddenly out horizontally and spreads abroad. To critically examine these hoops, to get the best effect, one should stand on the corner of Montgomery and look up a steep street like Clay or Washington. As the ladies loop their dresses up till they lie in folds and festoons on the spreading hoop, the effect presented by a furtive glance up a steep street is very charming. It reminds me of how I used to peep under circus tents when I was a boy, and see a lot of mysterious legs tripping about with no visible bodies attached to them. And what handsome, vari-colored, gold-clasped garters they wear nowadays! But for the new spreading hoops I might have gone on thinking ladies still tied up their stockings with common strings and ribbons as they used to do when I was a boy and they presumed upon my youth to indulge in little freedoms in the way of arranging their apparel which they do not dare to venture upon in my presence now. But, as I intimated before, one new fashion seems to be marked and universally accepted. It is in the matter of shoes. The ladies all wear thick-soled shoes, which lace up in front and reach halfway to the knee. The shoe itself is very neat and handsome up to the top of the instep, but I bear a bitter animosity to all the surplus leather between that point and the calf of the leg. The tight lacing of this legging above the ankle-bone draws the leather close to the ankle, and gives the heel an undue prominence or projection, makes it stick out behind and assume the shape called the jaybird heel pattern. It does not look well. Then imagine this tall shoe on a woman with a large, round, fat foot, and a huge, stuffy, swollen-looking ankle. She looks like she had on an elbow of stovepipe. 
any foot and ankle that are not the perfection of proportion and graceful contour look surprisingly ugly in these high-water shoes the pretty and sensible fashion of looping up the dress gives one ample opportunity to critically examine and curse an ugly foot i wish they would cut down these shoes a little in the matter of leggings End of section 26.